chapter 47, um, now Joseph, as the second most powerful man in Egypt, is going to settle the clan of Jacob into Goshen. Now, on the board, and this is only if you're interested in history, but uh, I thought I'd just put uh, a couple of historical facts up on the board. The book of uh, Genesis, where we are now, is in what is called the Middle Kingdom of Ancient Egypt's history. I don't know if you know much about history at this point, but ancient Egyptian history is divided into three periods, the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, and the New Kingdom. The Old Kingdom is where the pyramids were built. And in between those two is a short intermediate period, as they call it. But anyway, so where we are now is in the Middle Kingdom, and it's actually near the end of the Middle Kingdom. And the pharaoh that is being mentioned here in the Bible, in these uh, uh, passages in, in Joseph's life, is Pharaoh Sestorus. And the date that Joseph settles Jacob and his clan onto the Nile Delta is 1876 B.C. Again, if you're, you know, you may not be interested in this. It may, maybe nobody's interested. I'm really interested in this kind of stuff. But because what makes this fascinating is it makes it come alive. Because we can then document, once we know when this biblical material is occurring, we can then document what else is happening in ancient Egypt. And it is really remarkable because during the reign of Sestorus, Great building projects occurred. Great projects associated with the agricultural advance of ancient Egypt. Uh, a number of significant canals were built. And there's a major canal, still today it's called that, there's a major canal built that flows out from the Nile, of course, the main water source, that they call Canal Joseph. It's historic. It's been called that for centuries. Whether that actually is the one that Joseph may or may not have built is impossible to verify. But the point I'm really making here, and that's all I'll say, and I'll stop this history stuff, but what we know happened in Pharaoh Sestoris' reign parallels perfectly what we're reading about in terms of Joseph as he's managing the economy of Egypt. Because that's really what he's doing. It's an agricultural economy. He's managing it during this time of, of great abundance and then the period of great famine, that seven-year period of famine, which, remember, is, is uh, wh where we are right now. Okay. Okay? And Please. The is, is the pharaoh that is in power while Joseph... Well, we, the pharaoh, like verse 1 we're going to read, pharaoh, that's the stores. The pharaoh that is mentioned here is... is in the second... The second. Oh, yeah, that when we get to Genesis uh, chapter 1, that's a totally different pharaoh. It's a total. Yes, in what did I say? Yeah, I'm sorry if I said, I meant Exodus. I'm sorry, I don't know why I said that. But you're right, in Exodus chapter 1, that is a totally new pharaoh. It's a new dynasty, and there's some really interesting things about that that I want to deal with. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. You know, he's a manager, and sometimes people, um, perhaps not all, because most people don't get into management in, in companies, major companies, etc. Um, here is a very spiritual, God-seeking uh, man. Uh, and you said, in essence, he's a manager. He's, you know, he does all the functions of managing, and he's a Christian. He's a Christian leader in a nation that isn't a Christian nation. True. And maybe contextually, um, these are there's a lot of examples maybe throughout the Bible that we can encounter that we could say that could be me or Absolutely. And I could be that light or Absolutely. You know, we're not limited to mm -hmm. going to church and being behind the pulpit to be a minister of the word, right? I mean well, to be, mm -hmm. and I mean, Joseph is one of those. Daniel would be another one where, I mean, he served in the court of a very, very secular kingdom, Babylonia, and then later Persia. So, no, you're right. And it's um, the, 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 the character traits that you would assign to both Joseph and Daniel as our examples, men of integrity, men who were pursuing excellence as a core value in what they did, 
they manage things well. They, they saw everything they do uh, as important to God and as being a good steward. And so all of those things, we can also, in 2016, we can also manifest those qualities as we go about our work, whether we're working for a Christian uh, boss and leader or company or whatever or not. And uh, one of the, you know, you're getting me on a bunny trail here, but I'm going to say one more thing. I'm going to stop. But one of the, the metaphors that's used in the Bible and Jesus uses in, in Matthew chapter 5 is to be salt and light. And you are the salt of the world, you are the, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, and so on. Both of those, however you push that metaphor, that figure of speech, is, is important in, in understanding. Because what, what does light do? By its very existence, it exposes evil, it exposes darkness. Not necessarily by saying anything, but just by living your life the way you live your life. You are exposing evil and darkness for what it is. And salt, certainly in the ancient world, salt was much more thought of as that which preserves, not necessarily that which adds flavor. I mean, to some extent, the very wealthy added salt to a steak or a piece of meat like we do today. But in the ancient world, that was not its primary value. And so just think, okay, that means that wherever we are as salt, we're like a preservative. We're preserving things from further decay because we represent integrity. We represent values and virtues and morals that come from our God. And so I see both Joseph and Daniel, the two <coughs> examples we're using here, as, as just illustrating that. I mean, they did not give up their faithfulness to God. But at the same time, they weren't milk toast, and they were extremely effective leaders. And they were men of integrity, and they did not surrender that integrity in doing what, in both these cases, kings were asking them to do. So that took five minutes for me to respond to your question or comment, but that's it. So let's finally get into the text. It's now five minutes after 12, and we've yet to read a verse of Scripture. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh that Pharaoh would be against Astorus, as I mentioned up there. My father and my brothers with their flocks, herds, all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They're now in the land of Goshen. And he took from among his brothers five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, what is your occupation? They said, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. We are a from a long line of carers of animals. They said to Pharaoh, we've come to sojourn in the land. There's no pasture for your servants' flocks. The famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father, your brothers have come to. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father, your brothers, in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. Now, notice this second clause and if any able men among them put them in charge of my livestock. And the my livestock is Pharaoh's livestock. So in addition to, and this tells us something, that Pharaoh is allowing them to use the land of Goshen, which was so productive and so, can I use the word ideal, that that's where he herded some of his animals, his livestock. And so he's saying to Jacob, to Joseph, and therefore also to Jacob, if some of your men are available, I'd like to put them in charge of my livestock. So, I mean, you see here a magnificent pro example of the providence of God. Pharaoh is not only sanctioning what Joseph has, has said, I'm going to set them in, in Goshen, but he's also giving them a stake in the success of Egypt. You're going to care for Pharaoh's livestock as well presumably for some kind of financial uh, return. So again, the year here is 1876 B.C. We know that. We can date that with, with, with a pretty high degree of certainty. Um, and so, all right. Now, that's just, we already knew they were going to settle in Goshen. The only piece this adds is Pharaoh now sanctions it, and he gives them additional responsibility because now he, Pharaoh, has a stake in them being successful because he's given some of them apparently responsibility to care for his flock. 
Um, at the end of chapter 46, Joseph specifically told his brothers not to tell Pharaoh that they were shepherds. And then they did. There seems to be, but they added, there certainly is a reason added, for that. They added, as our fathers were. In other words, you, you follow me? No, oh, they okay. added that. And you're raising a good question, but it seems as if they are saying we are a long, we are from a long line of those who care for animals. That's been our profession, meaning. Uh, now, there's a, there's a very important historical issue here, and I wasn't going to bring it up, but Joe's forcing me to bring it up. Um, so uh, I'll bring it up. The Egyptians um, had historical reasons for this. The Egyptians feared the nomadic raiders coming out of the east. Now, when you know, if, if I say east, I don't mean China. You know, I'm talking about the east Mediterranean Arab area. Okay, and they they were a problem. They will be a problem for Israel when they settle in Canaan. These are nomadic raiders, and some of them are very forceful raiders. As a matter of fact, I'm going to get beyond our, our course where we are now, but one of the reasons the Middle Kingdom falls is a group out of Asia, uh, uh, Southwest Asia, a group out of the Arabian area called the Hyksos are going to conquer the Delta. And they, they have chariots, they have horses, and they're nomadic raiders. And so the caution that Joseph was issuing is, they're coming from Canaan. Are the, they're herders of animals. Are these, these nomadic raiders as well? Don't let Pharaoh think that you are a threat, which is his counsel at the end of chapter 46. And so when they respond to Pharaoh's question, they say, as our fathers were. We are in a long line of caring and shepherding and, 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 and managing livestock. Um, and because it was Joseph and so on, Pharaoh buys it. Okay, that's fine. So, I mean, there's an historical reason for their concern about this because of these raiders from the Arabian and Eastern regions that were a real threat to the delta of the Nile. And that will be so formidable, a group, again, they'll be called the Hyksos. They're going to conquer the delta. And end the Middle Kingdom. After, and that's why when we get to chapter 1 of Exodus, this Pharaoh who knew not Joseph is a new Pharaoh. And I'll talk about that when we get to it. So, Joe, thank you for asking the question. Well, thank you, Phil. Rob. You're probably going to answer this next time, but my question is, new Pharaoh, is that also the new kingdom in terms of period? That's correct. By the time we're in Exodus, which is almost 400 years later, uh, this will be the beginning of the New Kingdom, that final major period in ancient Egyptian history. Well, you guys are putting this together. That's great. Now, there's really something strange that happens here. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Look at the next verse. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father, and he stood before him Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. <coughs> Now, just think about that for a minute. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. It's a bold move. It is. And it would seem as if, although the text doesn't tell us that, it would seem as if Joseph is bringing his father in to meet Pharaoh, not only to introduce him to Pharaoh, but also for this very purpose. Now, this manifest something that is very, very unusual for me, you and me to understand in 2016. The ancient Near Eastern world was a world of tribes and clans. You, you, I mean, you didn't have nation states like we think of nation states today. And the head of a tribe or the head of a clan was respected and honored regardless of what the Kriber clan was. And so what you have here is an ancient Near Eastern tradition of the head of a clan, a patriarch of a clan, blessing another leader. 
Now, we would assume, although the Bible doesn't specifically say that, that that blessing would have involved a blessing in the name of God. And so you, you have this really kind of strange, for you and me, unusual sort of ceremony of this, this head of a clan coming in to one of the most powerful men in the ancient world and blessing him. Maybe putting his hand on his shoulders or his head. And I mean, it's just, it's, but it's, it's this very typical ancient Near Eastern way of honoring and respecting and deferring to patriarchs. Because Jacob is much older than Pharaoh Sestoris. And unlike today, older individuals received a tremendous lot of respect, a tremendous amount of dignity, and you deferred to that person, regardless of who you are. We don't, our culture doesn't do that at all. To some extent, Asian cultures do, the Japanese, to a degree, Korean, definitely the Chinese culture, where they still defer to the elderly with respect and honor. In the United States, we don't do that quite as much. So in a way, that's all that is going on here. So Pharaoh says to him, how many are the days of your years of your life? And Jacob said, because remember, this is an elderly patriarch. How old are you? The days of my life, my sojourning, 130. So Joe, Jacob is 130 years old here. And then he makes this quite remarkably accurate summary of his life. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. That's Jacob, isn't it? He has had a rough life. A lot of it was his fault. You remember? I mean, remember the deceptive manipulator, Jacob, the heel catcher, stealing everything from Esau? Remember all that? And then the going up to... Laban and spending 14 years with him and being hoodwinked, you know, getting Leah when he only wanted Rachel, you remember all that. And then all of, all of the trauma of thinking Joseph was killed by a wild animal and going through, you know, all of, this has been his life. And so that summary, and they have not attained to the days of the years of my life of my fathers in the day of their sojourn. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them the possession land of each, the best of the land in the land of Ramses. Now, this area of Goshen, and the map I gave you last time, I think it was last time, remember where Goshen is, I put an arrow so you wouldn't miss it. But Goshen was also historically known as Ramses. Now, please, there's two things to remember about this. And if you want to dwell on it, I'll say more. But when you look at Ramses, take the first two letters, R-A. That's Ra. That's the god of the sun. That's the most important god in the pantheon of gods of ancient Egypt. So this area was named after that god. Later pharaohs are going to have that name Ramses. So this district, if, that, if I can use that word, this district of ancient Egypt was named after the sun god, the most important god of Egypt uh, in the Egyptian, because Egypt's had dozens and dozens and dozens of gods. Later, that's going to become extremely important as we'll get into the book of Exodus. Joseph provided for his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Point, Joseph begins to care for the clan. And he will not take care of them. Now, the next section, um, I don't know if you want to go into this in great detail, we will. And I, I want to highlight some things as we get started, and I, I'd like to walk you through it in the overview real quickly, and then we'll look at it in some detail. Verse 13 through really the end of the chapter, chapter 47, is a summary account of Joseph as a manager, Joseph as an administrator, Joseph as a 
probably the second most powerful man in Egypt. How did he administer Egypt through this famine? How did he take the country through this famine? Uh, because uh, this, everything we've read so far, and you're going to really see it here, it is so acute that the only place you could get food was in the storehouses that Joseph had built. So how does Joseph administer the? Does he just give out the food? No. This isn't a welfare program. This is a program where he will administer it and he will charge people for it, including making some of them debt slaves. But they're welcome that and look at it. So if you look at verse, I'm going to walk you through this. Verse 14, they pay for it with their money. Verse 16, the famine continues. They run out of money. They pay for it with their livestock, with their animals. They run out of money. They run out of their animals. They now agree to an indentured servitude type of arrangement. You might call a debt slave. That was extremely common in the ancient world. If you can't make a payment on whatever it is, you become like an indentured servant to that person who's going to provide you with the food and the necessities. So Joseph is administering Egypt through this massive crisis. But remember, we had stated that in an earlier chapter, he had taken for seven years when they had lush, incredible uh, harvests and stored it and built storehouses and organized the nation for the time that we're now reading about, when an acute, widespread famine will hit the land. Well, this is the, this is the entire eastern Mediterranean world. Because that's why Jacob and his clan come down, because Canaan doesn't have enough food. So the entire eastern Mediterranean is devastated by this drought, famine, crisis that hits. Even had the Egyptians become... Slaves. Absolutely. These are these are not these are not Israel. Right. These are not Israel's clan. These are the Egyptians. And they they called Joseph their savior. Because he did. And it's just I find it fascinating here only from this perspective. Joseph is not just handing out food. It is it is a well-organized system of people buying what they need in order to survive. And so it's just it's quite a it's quite a, a fascinating insight into how the ancient Near Eastern world did things. I mean, can you imagine today in our culture which is, is you know, slavery has been abolished since the 13th Amendment of the Constitution, but if you can't afford to buy food and you can't have anything you can barter with you're an indentured servant to me and I'll take care of you as long as you, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just abhorrent to us. But here you have in the ancient Near Eastern world, this, this cultural arrangement and acceptance. We don't just give out food. What we will do is we're going to make you responsible and accountable. And we will, this is a very paternalistic state. Do you understand what I mean by paternalistic state? really caring for the people in a time of massive, massive crisis. But at the same time, they have an obligation to Pharaoh and in working out this period of crisis until it's over. That's a real practical approach, though, it, isn't it? It, it, it is. I'm, I'm trying not to make it political in 2016, oh, but okay. it's... At the same time, it's just saying, instead of creating a nanny-type state where there's incredible dependence on people, of people on the state, you, you, are, you are in a time of crisis, you're going to care for them, and then when the crisis is over, they can go back to growing their own food, and et cetera. But it's just, it's really, it's just a, a really remarkable insight into that, how the ancient world did things like this. And here's Joseph administering it. 
You know, I'm not sure I can give you uh, a really accurate uh, number there, Dave, because the kinds of records that we like to see are are simply not available. We do know that by the time um, the book of Exodus opens, the Jewish population is approaching 2 million. So therefore, we can probably extrapolate from that. You're probably talking about from Cain and the whole Eastern Mediterranean down into the Nile, which is where the largest number of people, Nile Delta, which is where the largest number of people to live. I would imagine you're talking about somewhere around 10 million people. I don't think it would be any higher than that. What's New York? Two more million added to it. Did you say 10 million? About in, 10. In Egypt itself? Well, and remember, I said the whole Eastern Mediterranean and the Nile Delta. The I'm sorry? Suffering, they were suffering from the famine? Well, this is, I, I would guess, this is the approximate population of that whole area. Okay. This must have been a massive amount of food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this idea of indentured servitude didn't really go away until recently. We look back into our founders. Benjamin Franklin was an indentured servant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of people before the, the major uh, migrations in the early 20th century, Ellis Island and all that. But before that, the vast number of people who came to North America came as indentured servants. They really did. They couldn't afford the passage over uh, from Europe. They couldn't afford that transition. So you would agree to serve for seven years to someone who would pay your way over. They need to work. And, and in most cases, it was because of the nature of the the 13 colonies of British North America, the need for workers, the need for, that's, that's how that need was met. Tragically, then, that also evolved into chattel racial slavery as the European nations got involved in the slave trade, which is a whole other story. It doesn't have anything to do with this. All right, let's look at verse 20. I, I, I'm trying to, I'm hoping this, I'm trying to make this come alive to you, because it's kind of boring when you first read it. But make this come alive. This is a real insight into a good administrator managing a massive crisis in the Eastern Mediterranean world. So Joseph, verse 20, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their field because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. And that is definitely true by the new kingdom, which is that last major phase. Pharaoh owns virtually all the land in Egypt. And as for the people, he made them servants of them from one envy to the other. Verse 22, an exception, only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. And these are not the priests of Yahweh. These are the priests of the Egyptian worldview. I'll say more about them in in Exodus. They become a very important player in the book of Exodus. And Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own. And as seed for the field, and for food for yourselves and your households, and food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, Lord, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So you can see what happens as this transition occurs, and Pharaoh owns everything, they become like sharecroppers, don't they? That is, the people of Egypt become like sharecroppers, and the arrangement is, again, a very specific arrangement for every, you know, bushel you harvest, a fifth goes to Pharaoh. Four-fifths are yours. And so it's just establishing this arrangement. Um, Again, in the midst of massive, massive crisis, how Pharaoh... Uh, how Joseph speaking for Pharaoh manages all this. All right, any questions? Well, yeah, please. Pharaoh, Pharaoh 
accumulated almost all the wealth then in the land you know, during that period of time. When money, livestock, and everything, it all belonged to him. That's so, correct. So that I basically correct. I assume it's still the same 400 years later. I mean, he, he yeah. Yes, that's that's correct. Um, I want to add something here that is also important. I'm going to go on a little quick bunny trail, but it really helps us to understand, not necessarily agree with, but to understand this Egyptian worldview. The chief ethic of ancient Egypt, I'm translating, I'm transliterating from the hieroglyphic into English, was ma'at. Ma'at is a, it's an ethic, it means order, stability. Now, in the Egyptian worldview, in the ancient Egyptian way of looking at things, it was Pharaoh's major responsibility to maintain Ma'at in Egypt. You follow? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. In other words, this is the chief primary ethical goal of Egyptian civilization. If you want to ask, what was it that was characteristic of ancient Egypt? It was the order, predictability, and stability of that civilization. They gave it a name, Ma'at. And it was Pharaoh's responsibility as the incarnate God, as N, I shouldn't say the N incarnate God, it was his responsibility to maintain that. And so you see it here in this particular passage that we're studying. Joseph, as an agent for Pharaoh, is maintaining the order, stability, and predictability of the ancient Egyptian civilization, even in the midst of a massive crisis. And so, therefore, the Egyptian people are willing, and we saw it in the language of these verses, the, the people of Egypt are willing to defer to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's agent, Joseph, you are our savior. And it, is, it fits with how the Egyptians looked at everything. And part of that, uh, by that I mean ma'at, part of that, that desire for order and stability and predictability was from the Nile. Because the Nile River is a very predictable river. It starts in Central Africa, and it's one of the few rivers on Earth that flows from the south toward the north, and it dumps into the Mediterranean. But it, it brings with it, you know how a river, when it flows, it brings with it all the silt and all the rich topsoil and everything, and dumps it in the Nile, uh, dumps it in the Nile Delta. And, and Goshen is part of that. It's just, And every year, every year the Nile floods at exactly the same time. Now, today, it's, it's a little different because both the Sudanese government and the Egyptian government have built all kind of dams along the... So it, it, it interrupts the predictability. But Pharaoh had his agents all through the Nile River. And we found them in archaeology, keep, keeping these charts of exactly when the, the Nile flooded. And so with accuracy, the Nile would flood on exactly the same day. They knew exactly when... So that order and stability and predictability of their world... It was Pharaoh's responsibility to maintain that. And God had created that. Structure. Of course. I mean, that's the way God created it. And that's why when we get to the book of Exodus after Christmas, you're going to see that. As God begins to say through Moses, let my people go. I mean, you remember Pharaoh, his, you'll see his name is Amenhotep at that point. He says, no, I'm not going to let him go. And so those 10 great plagues that start chapter 7 of Exodus and go through a couple chapters, what does God do? Yahweh makes war on the Egyptian worldview. He dismantles it. He demonstrates to them, Pharaoh is not the keeper of Ma'at, I am. And if you do not let my people go, I will upend your way of life. And that's exactly what he does. So, I mean, when you understand the Egyptian worldview and how they viewed things and looked at things, then you understand what's going on in the text. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's like 
not, not at all in, in a good analogy, but in a way it's like a modern 21st century person say, well, the order and stability of nature that I observe when I study is due to the impersonal force of natural selection. I don't know if you know what that sentence, I just summarized the Darwinian hypothesis. Or it is due to some intelligent designer who has made the world the way it is. Verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it. They were fruitful and multiplied greatly. That is a very important clause. The promise God made to Abraham is being fulfilled that your offspring will be as numerous as the stars of the sky, the sand of the seashore. It's beginning to happen. Because from this clan of 70 that entered the land of Goshen, they're going to multiply into a very large nation. It's going to take them 430 years to do that. But it's starting. They're starting to have lots of babies because they're in a very prosperous, lush area. And all of a sudden, Goshen is crawling with Jews. I just made that up, but nobody paid attention. All right. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So he enters in 1876 B.C., and the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 Enters Goshen, he's 130. Talks to Pharaoh, blesses Pharaoh. He lives 70, 17 more years. Now what Jacob does is he asks in this last paragraph, he asks Joseph to make a promise. Verse 29, and when the time drew near that Israel, why is he called Israel? That's his covenant name. Remember, Genesis 32, good. In your <clears throat> Israel's, excuse me, that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh, like this. That's weird, but that's an ancient Near Eastern methodology of taking a vow. They Pro- do that today? Pardon me? They no, do that today. no, no, no. And said, Do not. Bury me in Egypt. Man, that's an extraordinary statement of faith. Why is that an extraordinary statement of faith? He's a we can get back to the land that he wanted to be buried. Okay, what was that last word you used? Promised land. Promise land. The promise is not in Egypt. The promise is in Canaan. So Joseph, when I die and you go into Canaan, don't bury me there. And Joseph isn't going to go into Canaan either because it's going to be 430 years later. But when we get to the book of Exodus, you will see this. They take, they will bury Joseph there. They're going to take, I'm getting ahead of myself, but they're going to take Jacob's bone. Joseph is going to lead a huge processional back to the caves of Machpelah and will bury Jacob there. And the reason I'm saying is, this is don't miss this. This is a very significant statement of faith on Jacob's part. It's not, it's not going to be very long. You, we'll, read, we'll get to that next week, or I mean uh, in January. Because he will die, and then we're going to have this little interim here of Jacob blessing uh, um, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then in the next chapter, chapter 49, he's going to bless all of his sons. And then he's going to, he, Joseph, is going to take Jacob's bones back and bury him. But the reason, the reason I don't want to skip over this quickly is this is a really extraordinary statement of faith. 
Because the promise is not in Egypt. The promise is in Canaan. And that's where I want to be buried. Who else is buried there? Abraham is. Sarah is. Isaac is. Rebecca is. I want to be buried. uh, Yeah, Rebecca is. I want to be buried where they're buried. Because I am in that covenant line of promise. It's such a great statement of faith. Carry me out of Egypt, bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed or head of his staff. The Hebrew word is kind of hard. Again, this is an ancient Near Eastern practice. Bowing This is a reverent act, a reverent act of thanksgiving, a reverent act of worship, a reverent act of of deference to the providential, sovereign God who keeps his promises. I just love this because now we're going to see Jacob blessing his, his, his sons, excuse me, his grandsons, his sons and his grandsons. But you're going to see here a man who is really transformed. This is the Jacob, not the heel catcher, manipulator, conniving, deceptive, duplicitous Jacob. This is Jacob, the man of faith. He believes the promise. And he says, don't bury me here, Joseph. Make sure I'm buried back with my father and my grandfather, Abraham and Isaac. Why does it call him Jacob and Israel? You know, in back-to-back sense. Well, remember, you you got to go back to Genesis 32. Genesis 32 is where Jacob wrestles with God. That's that really significant where God breaks Jacob of his conniving spirit. And he says, God says to him, you are no longer Jacob, you are Israel. And so that becomes his covenant name. And that therefore becomes the children of Israel. Who are the children of Israel? The children of Jacob. And Israel, as a, as a title, means he who strives with God. And both Jacob strives with God and the whole nation will strive with God. It's a great, it's a, it's a covenant name. And so you see that used interchangeably now. Jacob, Israel, interchangeably because it's referring to the same person. Israel is his covenant name. Jim, some of that is mentioned in your book, too, a covenant people. Yeah. That we're about well, thank you for the plug of my book that's exactly right but I mean it's really it's just so important uh, to, to understand that very important theme God is covenant making covenant keeping God and these great patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, Jacob despite all of their fallacies and under um, underpinnings and shortcomings of their lives they believed that they believed that they banked everything on it. And here's Jacob. He's going to die in Egypt, but he still believed the promise. Okay. Now, we have a couple minutes. I think we can do this. I'd love to do this. God would really be pleased with it. I'll be pleased too. But Jacob does something here which probably caught the members of the clan off guard a little bit. He blesses the two children of Joseph. Where were the two children of Joseph born? In Egypt. Who is the mother of the two sons of Joseph? An Egyptian princess. Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. I'm in chapter 48. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. It was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength, sat up in the bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. Now, please note, if you don't know this, God Almighty is El Shaddai. We've done, looked at that before. We've talked about that before that that's an important title of God, the mighty, powerful one. That's why it's usually translated God Almighty. 
What's Jacob referring to? What had happened to him in chapter 35. Remember that? You got to go back quite a few chapters. But Jacob is just summarizing what happened to me in chapter 35. The Lord appeared to me. El Shaddai appeared to me. And the ladder going up to heaven, all of that. That's what he's summarizing. Behold, I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you. I will make of you peoples. I will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. What's he doing? He's just reviewing the covenant promise. We just keep seeing it being reviewed again and again and again through the book of, Ex, uh, through the book of Genesis. Now verse 5. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. What does that mean? In the family? They're in the family. Kick it up a couple more levels. They will share in the birthright of the covenant. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children of that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by my the name of their brothers in their inheritance. What does that mean? They will receive a land grant in Canaan. Now, what we're going to discover, man, and we're almost out of time, but I want to lay this on the table. What we're going to discover is an Ephraim and Manasseh will get the double portion due to the firstborn. Is Joseph the firstborn? No. He's the 11th born. But Reuben, who was the firstborn, had committed adultery and had shamed the family and lost the firstborn birthright. And so what Jacob is doing as the head of the clan, I am taking the firstborn double portion from Reuben and giving it to you, to your two sons, Joseph. That's extraordinary. And then both sons, not just one. Yes. And we're sharing. And we, we won't do this here, obviously, because it's not a part of the book of Genesis. But if you study the land grants of each one of the tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh get one-sixth of the land. Manasseh's land grant, Ephraim's land grant are very significant in terms of total territory because they get the double portion. So it's just, and Jacob is doing this. He's choosing to do this as head of the clan. And then verse 7, let me complete this if I can real quick. As for me, when I came from Padan, remember that's, where Rachel was from, that's where he had gotten Rachel as his wife, along with Leah and all that. To my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan, where there was as still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Now, if I could get you on a plane and we'd go and land in Tel Aviv, David Ben-Gurion Airport, drive down to Jerusalem and take you over to Bethlehem, as we enter the cross-check, because remember, Bethlehem is now Palestinian territory, you enter, and we enter into the, I'd say right to the right, there is where Rachel was born, uh, buried. That's the historic site of her burial. It's a major, major attraction. So all he's doing is listen. I buried her in Bethlehem. That's going to be really significant. He's drawing the attention once again to the promised land. And your two sons, Joseph, are going to receive a double portion. It's kind of neat, isn't it? I know you don't get excited about things like that, but I think that's kind of a neat. Jacob is choosing it. We're out of time. I want to talk about why he does it this way. And then the rest of the chapter is he chooses to bless these two sons in a remarkable way. Chapter 49, I will give you a chart when we regather in January of the blessings on the 12 sons. It's like a, it's like a long poem. And then we'll conclude with chapter 50, the last major dialogue of Joseph. Okay? Lord, we are thankful for um, the opportunity to study your word this morning. 
I pray that it has been a blessing to each guy here. I thank you for this this focus on this really remarkable man, Joseph, uh, in one of the most powerful periods of the ancient world, a key leader who you are using in your providence and your sovereignty to preserve life, but also to hatch the birth of the nation of Israel. A clan of 70 moving into Goshen will birth into a mighty nation. That's Exodus is all about how they get from slavery to the promised land. Your faithfulness, you make a promise. It's a covenant, a promise, and you keep it. It sometimes takes hundreds of years for you to fulfill the promise. That was certainly true in his promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you kept your word. And we're studying the amazing faithfulness and integrity and, and stamina and perseverance of Joseph that you used in such mighty ways. All of us are men who can be men of integrity, men of character, men of perseverance who can represent you well uh, too. Not in the magnitude of Joseph. We don't run a nation. But each one of us has covenant responsibilities to our wives, to our children, in our workplace. We want to do that well to your glory. That means integrity. That means excellence. That means perseverance and fortitude. But our lives are lives committed to you, and we represent you in all we say and do. So, Lord, as we go into the Christmas season here uh, in our own lives, may it be a time of celebration. May it be a time of of some rest and relaxation, but most of all, may we keep our focus on Jesus because Christmas changes everything. Things are never going to be the same after Bethlehem. And that, of course, is what the scriptures declare to us over and over again. So we thank you for the time we've had in 2016. We look forward in anticipation to the next year as we continue our study together in Christ's name. Amen.